Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hello and welcome to the long-awaited Germany edition of Slate Money, which is normally your guide to the business and finance news of the week. But really now, this week, we are just going to talk about Deutschland, which is one of my favorite subjects. And we haven't, after five years of uh, Slate Money, really talked about it much. So we have the one and only Adam Tooze from Colombia, where you study... I teach European history and world history, and I run the European Institute there. So, and and you lived for twenty years in Heidelberg and Berlin. Yeah, on and off. Yeah, on and off. Um, and you've been living. Oh, but but let me also quickly introduce Emily Peck from the Huffington Post. Hello. Who um, you've learned like two German words for this episode. Yes, and I wrote them down. Um, and tell you them also later. Anna Shemansky, who was named like Shemansky. You 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 have like the name like Shemansky. I'm Polish, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean it's much the same country, really. Um, Although but, I'm actually Polish and German. And you have and you too have like a couple of German words you can yes. bring along. Ambition. <laughs> uh, we have we have ein, ein kleines bisschen Deutsch, and we will we will talk about Germany with Adam Tooze. Um and Adam, you're just telling us before we started recording here that you were. In Berlin, you were living in Berlin when the wall came down in what was that ninety one, eighty nine, eighty yeah, nine from the summer of eighty nine. Um, and so you were there for reunification. Yes. So yeah, before we get into the sort of myths versus realities of Germany, which I think is the 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 core of where we are, I, I want to talk about, but before we get into that, I think one of the things that almost no one in America understands is reunification and how big of a deal it was and what effects it had on on Germany. And I feel it's really hard to understand Germany without understanding reunification, which was this sort of unprecedented thing. Has anything ever happened like it anywhere else ever? Well, the only real analogy, and it's kind of a painful one, is the Anschluss of Austria to <laughs> the Third Reich in 1938, which was an analogy that the Germans themselves struggled <laughs> to avoid. Yeah, they'll try not to talk about it. So, So explain to me... Um, yeah, uh, on a very sort of big picture level, you had two countries which shared 
a culture and a language, but definitely not an economy. There was this absolutely enormous economic gap between the two. The the Ostmark, the German currency, was worth bupkis. But well, it, like four to one, or yeah. unofficially maybe on the black market, nine to one, and they and it, exchanged it between one and two to one in the end. So, so it was it was a very expensive proposition for. West Germany. Yeah, about 120 billion Deutschmarks a year over maybe two trillion old Deutschmarks uh, altogether went into East Germany over the course of 15 years after unification. So that's about 1.2, 1.3 trillion euros. Huge expenditure from the West German side. What did they spend the money on? Uh, everything. I mean, it's a comprehensive refurb of East Germany. It's one of the really remarkable things if you come from you know the United States, North America to see what's gone on there. Uh, East Germany looks like a you know like an East like an East Asian emerging market infrastructure, beautiful railway stations, really transformative uh, public spending. Uh, rather less, unfortunately, in terms of private investment, manufacturing, new jobs. So a lot of public infrastructure. So you so what happened is you they quite successfully with the aid of a trillion dollars managed to bring East Germany in the space of not that much that many years up to German standards of transportation and living. It's still it's still poorer than the West, but not much poorer, right? Exactly, yeah. It's much like the difference between you know a poor and rich element of the United States. Not as crass, though, as the gap between, say, Connecticut and Mississippi, but um, <laughs> certainly uh, a very remarkable level of, of homogeneity across the country. And, and then the other... And then moving on to more like where we are at present... Like people think of Germany, I think if people think of Germany at all, as, as still having this kind of east-west divide, which it has to a certain degree. But now it's much more, in terms of the widening inequality, a north-south divide, right? It's a combination of both, actually. If you actually ask the question, are there any rich Germans? Like <laughs> one of the things that didn't happen in this post-communist society is you didn't get any oligarchs. Um, it isn't like a Russian situation or even a Slovakian or Hungarian situation. The wealth is entirely the top. You know, fraction over one percent. That kind of wealth is all in the West, um, and it's mostly in the Southwest. It's uh, and then in the North around Hamburg. So it's right. you know, Germany is a very decentralized place. It's not like the Gold Coast here. It doesn't concentrate in the same way. So Munich's a big pocket. Dusseldorf, Frankfurt, Hamburg are huge pockets of wealth. Berlin is a poor capital. Right? It's the poorest capital in in Europe, capital city. Right. So. Let's, so, so let's talk a little bit about what Americans believe. You've you've lived in America for nine years yeah, now, yeah, I know. and you taught you you lived in Germany. People are like, oh, you live in Germany, and, and they have an idea about this economic powerhouse with this this massive current account surplus and 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 some kind of like socialist paradise or something. Is like, what's the general impression? Do you think that like Americans have of? Of Germany. Well, I'm not sure they do have a very clear view. I mean, one of the things you have to reckon with is just people are not very familiar with Germany. They know it's there. They know it matters historically. A lot of people have family ties, but it's not a popular tourist destination. It's not like a, it's not a place people fantasize about going to, except maybe the, you know, the hipsters want to go to Berlin or right. uh, bits of Berlin. Um, so it's not a place that's commonly visited uh, in the way that you'd expect. And as a result, I think people do have, you know, people underestimate the diversity of the place, the sheer scale. You know, it's a it's the biggest European country, and it really shows when you're there. It's 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 very different depending on whether you're in the northeast, west, south, or whatever. 
Um, so it's a really, and on the other hand, it has many of the same problems that you know any other modern capitalist society has. It's a society with huge inequality, um, uh, as is the United so States. So talk about the inequality a bit. And I was also just going to say, I'm, I'm curious, not necessarily also just the inequality within Germany, but also Germany's place in Europe. And how when we think of the United States position in the world, we have a very clear idea of what that is. But I think a lot of people in the U.S. don't know a tremendous amount about Europe and certainly don't know a tremendous amount about Germany. And I think sometimes don't quite understand how Germany really fits into that picture. Is is Germany like the European hegemon in much the way that like America was the global hegemon for all those years? I mean, things would be so much simpler if that were true. Right? <laughs> and, and obviously people who are in the business of simplifying populist politicians in various places who want to draw a kind of us and them story, tell that story about Germany. But it, it just doesn't stack up. Um, even if you look at the financial sides of things, all of the, when we say Germany pays for Europe's policies, it pays strictly pro rata on the basis of a GDP per capita calculation. So it pays about 27% of most EU policies. France pays about 20%. Italy pays about 18%. It's really like the, it's not even quite the majority shareholder. I'd say it has a large blocking shareholder group, if you like, in European policy. Um, and it's in that position that it operates. It has the strongest credit rating. The Bund would be a safe asset if you know there was enough of it. But isn't this also one of the complexities you have in Germany, where on the one hand, it's certainly true that a lot of the peripheral European countries have depended on the low interest rates that they've been able to receive because of Germany, because of Germany being in the EU and the strength of Germany. But then on the other hand, you also have Germany really benefiting from having an undervalued currency. And also during the European debt crisis, when Germany's economy is still doing fairly well, again, they benefited from a weaker euro. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, from the German exporter's point of view, being attached to some pretty dicky uh, sovereign borrowers is a great bonus. And that was always part of the German strategy towards European monetary integration all the way back to the 70s. The last thing the Germans have ever wanted to be is the makers of a sovereign reserve currency because it puts you in the position of having an overvalued currency. So this really suits them from that point of view. And, and yet during the 2000s, the German economy kind of stagnated, right? What was that about? Well, a combination of things. The after, the kind of hangover from the from the reunification and the cost of reunification. The early 2000s recession hit the, the Germans really hard. They're an export-dependent economy. So when the entire world economy slows down, they slow down too. Um, and then on top of that, the countries that when they were going into the euro, of course, were canny about the exchange rates they picked. And most of them, Portugal probably being the only exception, picked quite competitive exchange rates when they went in. So initially, Germany was under serious pressure. Plus, one has to distinguish Germany from Germany Inc. So German business was doing just fine in the early 2000s because it was able to bolt on Eastern Europe as a manufacturing center, relocate production. Uh, profits uh, are doing just fine in the early 2000s. It's GDP growth and, and uh, wage income, which is stagnating. That, and that is really, that really um, interested me when I was doing the reading for this episode because I um, I didn't really know much about the German economy or I hadn't thought about it. I just And maybe there are a lot of other Americans like me. I just thought, well, they do it better than us. Their, their people make decent money. Like, I, so one thing that interested me was during um, this dark time uh, or whatever. The lost What's the word? decade. The lost <laughs> decade. Thank you. Um, I guess there were darker times. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Germany, much, it's a pretty high bar. Much darker. <laughs> um, was that I read something that said um, labor is sort of very accommodating in Germany in that they for 
they went without raises for a long time. And the mm. same thing again during the Great uh, Recession in 2008, where Germany didn't have increased unemployment because labor was like, just let us keep our jobs and just we'll, we'll go without a raise. It's OK. Um, and that sort of surprised me because I thought labor was really strong in Germany. I don't know why I thought that. And well, they, um, are. They, 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 yeah, they are yeah. strong. It's just, well, I mean. You know more than yeah, I no. do. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's not a. It, well, again, it's not, it's not Scandinavia, right? This isn't yeah. a country with a sixty percent unionization rate. But it's I still mean, like fifty, right? No, it's seventeen percent uh, oh, wow. unionization rate in Germany, down from mid twenties uh, fifteen years ago. Yeah, that shocked me. So, and the way it works is, however, that IG Metall and Verdi, which are the kind of lead elephant trade unions, one in metalworking, the other in the public sector, still do collective bargaining, which is then translated to the vast majority of workplaces in that sector. And then companies have the option to opt out of that. So really that story is, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's not quite as, as simple as it seems, because if you actually look at high-skilled, high-income uh, blue-collar workers in Germany, they saw quite rapid income growth in line with productivity. What we really see is a segmentation in the German labor force, which is as pronounced as anywhere in the world. So the OECD figures on, say, the Gini measure of inequality show the pre-tax Gini in Germany rising faster than in any other country from the late 90s. And what compensates for that is the welfare state. Right. So the welfare state works overtime to offset rapidly rising prices inequality. So is that, I mean, is that a kind of weird ideal? I mean, I feel like this is the equivalent of like Harvard raising its rack rate and then giving everyone a scholarship that Mm -hmm. you, you embrace the inequality that naturally comes with economic um, health, and then you redistribute. Is that, does that work? No, I mean, in small, you know, in small, really compact, relatively ethnically homogenous countries like Denmark, these kind of labor market deals have worked quite well. So Denmark has huge labor mobility. Everybody leaves jobs routinely because they know there's a huge amount of active labor market policy where you can get retrained. You never really drop out of the labor market. Germany is a much messier place than that. This is 80 million people, a lot of regional difference. Uh, No, a lot of the time, this is a far from an ideal situation. Uh, The people at the bottom end of the German labor market have basically been uncovered And furthermore, it's a very increasingly ethnically diverse place. It's 25% people with migration backgrounds now in the most extended sense. In the younger cohorts, it's pushing 40%. So Germans, people living in Germany under the age of five are currently 40% either direct migrant or from migrant families. And those people are not well integrated into the labor market, job training or education. And so that those dispersions in inequality, those are real. That's actually the emergence of new pockets of poverty across Germany, um, a real uh, social exclusion and disadvantage in the sense that we know it. Not as extreme as in the United States, but 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 very serious. I think, though, also when you're talking about German wages and German labor power and how that relates to all of Europe, I think it's important because by keeping labor costs, a lot of labor costs quite low, it didn't function exactly like devaluing their currency, but it kind of did in relation to the countries around. Because when you're looking at countries like Greece, Spain, Portugal, Italy, because they're part of the Mm -hmm. EU, when their economies really suffered, they couldn't devalue their currencies, but they also can't just keep wages incredibly low in the same, or not incredibly low, but relatively low in the way that Germany could. Yeah, I mean, that that chart, that chart about the Eurozone and the divergence of, uh, of labor costs mm-hmm. has a, had a huge impact on the debate. But the crucial thing is if you've got to break it down by sectors, and if you actually look at the traded sector for the German economy, that, that famous wage repression is just not as severe as we generally imagine. So what Germany is, is this very weird situation where the traded sector actually saw wage increases 
much closer to productivity levels. And the deflationary effect is coming in the non-traded sector. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. It's in the services sector, which was always a center of massive inefficiency in the German economy. If you ever lived there for any time or visited, you knew it. It was, it was like it was yeah. crazy don't, don't place. Don't buy anything on a Sunday. It was, but but the, that is where the inequality opened up. So it's a more maybe even more like one of these kind of insider-outsider stories. The people in the hardcore of the German manufacturing sector who enjoy very high levels of productivity, who've also had an adequate level of investment, reasonable number of robots being introduced into German manufacturing. They've generally speaking kept their jobs and they, the, the unions have been very proactive in managing those relationships, dosing, labor hours and so on. And their incomes have, have increased. Outside that protected core, it's not such a rosy picture. And it's not obvious that that relates directly to the export success because the Germans, you know, German exports don't compete on price, really. I mean, of course, all people compete in price in the end, but it's mainly on the quality side that they compete. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Anna, let's talk about education, because there's no other country in the world that has an education system quite like Germany's. And there's no other country in Europe, I believe, that has less social mobility than Germany. Like, there's this incredible, like, you're born into a certain class and you stay in that class. And that, Adam, is is related to the education system, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a really remarkable system. I mean, it's the opposite of the American vision of a comprehensive secondary school, uh, you know, middle school, high school experience. They, they split kids, still do, uh, in most of Germany at the age of 10 or 11 into three different tracks. And the top track leads naturally to university. The bottom track leads naturally to vocational training. The one in the middle is the kind of gray zone. It could lead to white collar apprenticeships. Uh, and then on the back of that, then at the back end of that, there's a requirement to stay in education and training, a legal requirement up to the age of 18. But what they funnel a large percentage of the of the, of the teenagers into is this very high quality apprenticeship training system. And they don't do apprenticeships in the sense that we might think like boilermakers or something. Uh, every single job in Germany has a training requirement. So if, which is why their hotel service is sort of lightly unfriendly, but extremely professional. <laughs> you know, their bank clerks are basically proficient. Um, Video editing is an apprenticeship in Germany. They've created, as it were, morph the apprenticeship model into the new era of services and tech. Um, And that is what the majority of teenagers still go into. And And it happens in every profession. I remember when I was telling my German family that you know, I was, they're like, so what are you doing? I'm like, I'm a journalist. They're like, so, you know, have you become a master yet? You know, <laughs> uh, what, you know, and I have relations who are in journalism. And it took them like five or six years yeah. before they could actually have a proper j- job because you have to go through this process mm-hmm. in just about every single profession. And this is also part of the bargain with labor in that those uh, those teenagers in apprenticeships are not well paid. So part of the deal is that you take a very, very minimal salary or uh, wage in that period in exchange for this training. What does that in mean terms. for um, what does that mean for entrepreneurship in Germany and people going out and starting businesses? Is that is the rates there of doing that lower than other places? They're distinctly lower. Yeah, no, I mean um, it's bad. it's it's a it's a very different model. 
uh, of the labor market and of business activity generally. Um, and it's, you know, the upside, of course, is a kind of valorization of all sorts of different types of work, all sorts of different kinds of qualification. You don't have to go to college or university. The universities, frankly, don't have much to uh, cr uh, crow about either. I mean, the German university system is incredibly mediocre. Um, but uh, on the other hand, it really is a, a static model. And again, we, we, you know, with given the increasing diversity of the German population, uh, the question of whether or not a really multicultural group of teenagers can be squarely incorporated into the system is still not properly answered, despite the fact that the Germans have had guest workers, so-called Gastarbeiter, since the 1960s. Well, I think in terms of what you just said, I know I, I've read a bit about how the tracking system, they've found that although it's supposed to track based on ability, it appears to track much more based on socioeconomic level and also whether you come from a migrant family. Yes, no, absolutely. And this was true. I mean, most European societies had this kind of selective system. Britain had it in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and everywhere that it was implemented, it was it was evident that it was basically tracking social and cultural capital. And one of the key demarcations there is what kind of migrant you are apart from anything else, right? It matters a great deal whether you're coming from the agrarian hinterland of Anatolia or whether you're, you know, your parents are Syrian academics who've, who've, who've scrambled their way to Germany and but know precisely which university you ought to go to to study electrical engineering. I mean, that, those kind of things then matter absolutely crucially. And, and all of the evidence suggests that Germany in this respect is by no means a mobile society. And it's not clear whether the dignity of work, as it were, model can be extended to a, a much more uh, diverse society. So one of the things that we're seeing in Germany is increases in inequality. It's not just that you have a, a surprisingly high degree of inequality, but also that it's rising. Yes. Um, what is the, like, given that this system hasn't changed in, you know, decades, what what's causing inequality to get worse? Well, the two, I mean, the familiar logics from all over the world, uh, you know, super returns to various types of, of, of human capital, uh, super returns to, to share ownership. Um, and at the bottom end, uh, the falling away of the social protections that was, you know, synonymous with Hart's fear, the the changes to the German benefit system, um, which which really took the safety net away from people who were in long term unemployment. I feel like some of the things you said in in this segment and the last segment, the combination of the rising inequality and then um, the the growth of the. Um, migrant population and they're sort of a failure to integrate them into the economy as a whole, sort of like a recipe for disaster, especially considering the sort of like the global picture and, and the rise of populism right now. And it makes me a little anxious. I mean, those are those are the stakes really of German politics. The the, the question of coherence of of, of and uh, unbehagen, this sort of sense of feeling unwell in your own society, is the key term of German politics in the moment. And the real question, I think, that we're facing right now is whether Angela Merkel is the problem, or whether Angela Merkel is the only person who can, as it were, pull Germany out of this this funk. The the right wing, uh, the AFD, the right wing of the Christian Democrats is basically making the case now that she has to go because she is the source of the problem because of the 2015 refugee decision. But I think what's interesting, if you look in Germany and some of the problems that they could face moving forward because of demographic issues, the fact that you have a low birth rate, that actually what they need <laughs> are yeah. immigrants. Yeah, absolutely. There's absolutely no question from the point of view of 
I mean, one could think about engineering, you know, slow decline, and that is an interesting and I think not, not an unreasonable problem for societies to address. But you can do that in Japan. Yeah, but exactly. But but if if they're in the business of maintaining or growing, then absolutely, short of a productivity miracle, they need they need workers. You could extend the age of retirement, of course, and fix the problem that way. But Germany could accommodate workers. Uh, the question is how you steer that flow, right, and where they come from and under what circumstances. And that's really the, the essence of the political problem right now. I mean, the real puzzle in many ways is why that, aren't, that question isn't being answered by huge flows of young people from Spain or huge flows of young people from Italy. Where, you know, they have these horrendous youth unemployment rates. Greece is a tiny place, right? I mean, even despite its massive unemployment level, if a million and a half Greeks emigrated, that would be the end of the Greek unemployment problem. Greece is, you know, less than half the size of Germany's largest state, Nordrhein-Westfalen, in economic terms. So there's a real issue of like why certain migrant flows within the EU are as sticky as they are, and then on the other hand, what you deal with these, how you deal with these avalanche-like flows from crisis countries like Syria, and the really big question in the background is, of course, Africa, Africa, Africa. How Europe deals with the massive. Uh, development gap on either side of the Mediterranean and the huge demographic pressure that's building up, uh, building up there. Also, I, one other thing I was thinking—I'm uh, not the first person to think this—that uh, <laughs> they could do because Germany has the. Correct me if I'm wrong. The lowest birth rate. Um, it, Certainly uh, down down there in the the bottom tier. Down, down um, there with yeah. Italy, anyway. And yeah. they have this like real problem with gender discrimination against women. Um, women aren't in the labor force as high as percentages they need to be, and they're higher than the U.S. Yeah, now. it's true. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. is not a good counter. No. <laughs> um, yeah. But it seems like they're facing a lot of yeah. discrimination. That's one reason they don't have a lot of babies. Is yeah, because exactly. they get really women hit are choosing for it. to work rather than have kids. Exactly. So um, could there be more stuff? to be done there. Well, that's one of the really remarkable stories. If there's one thing that the West Germans really did in the end absorb from the East, it's the realization that you needed to have an early childhood infant childcare system. So they actually established a, a quasi-legal right for German families to have childcare for kids from, I think, the age of nine months. Uh, this is hugely expensive, uh, and hugely contentious and far from complete in realization. But that's something they really got. The The the, and this is one of the key cultural issues at the heart of the unease of German conservatives with Angela Merkel is fundamentally, you know, she's a kind of feminist. Uh, and Ursula von der Leyen and people like that in her party have pushed an agenda of social cultural change, which is undeniable and specifically on this issue of, of working mothers. So explain the wage gap, because German women make significantly less than their male counterparts. And that gap is much bigger in Germany than it is in virtually any other European country. Like, where does that come from? Well, and there's two, generally speaking, with wage gap measures, right, there's two elements at work. One is absolute like-for-like comparisons. And those, I think, are pretty generic factors everywhere. What I would think of as being really peculiar to the German case is just how difficult it is for women to make careers, sustain careers there, which is then what opens up the really big gap in lifetime earnings. And why is it it difficult? Uh, because in the past, the assumptions about childcare and schooling have just been absurd. So, I mean, you know, I went to school in Germany. We started at 7.45 in the morning and finished at one ten. And there was a cast iron <laughs> oh assumption God. that there was a mother at home to take care of the kids. And they did not promise to keep us at school either. If a teacher was ill, for whatever reason, they'd send us home at 11.30 without any kind of prior warning. So... Uh, in in the last 15 years, German schools have recognized that they have a legal obligation to care for children for a fixed number of hours on any given day, <laughs> uh, which is obviously the, the precondition for you know, work-life balance in the modern age. But that's a recent thing. 
Right. And you still have the problem, which you have in a lot of countries, that you have far more women in low paying industries and you have far more women in part time work and just far more women in lower level work. Yeah, absolutely. And and, um, all of those things compound. I mean, I do think there's no doubt that it's changing and and the the demographic you know, you can't view the problem of gender inequality and demography as separate from each other. Dem- the demographic problem is German mm-hmm. women's answer to uh, <laughs> yep. this: these sustained questions of, and you know, who can possibly blame them? Uh, Wait, but those are the two. Just, I'm sorry, I see we need to stop, but they're the two words I learned are related oh, yeah. to this. Okay, but Emily, you have what are to help words? me pronounce them. Okay, okay. I'm going to say them I'll in try. English. Yeah. One is it means women's jobs, and it's. Oh, man. It's Frauer and... I wrote it down. <laughs> Show me. I wrote it down. What does that say? Frauenberufe. That just means exactly. women's jobs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sorry. One, that's what I said. Women's jobs. Yeah. And then the other one yeah. really disturbed me. Rabenmutter. Did I say that? Rabenmutter. Yes, yeah, yeah. It means so raven mothers. Crow mother. Yeah. It's what yeah. they call like working mothers because yeah. they leave their yeah. children behind in yeah. the nest. It's just like, like I'd want to reclaim that. Raven mother. <laughs> like we should the nasty women. Of we Germany. should be clear that I mean that language is really that's absolutely characteristic of. <laughs> Of, of of my period of growing up, they would look uh-huh. across the wall and they would see, you know, these socialist patterns of child rearing, which were going to raise little robots of, you know, socialist ideology. After the wall came down, the skinhead phenomenon in East Germany was blamed oh. on the fact that they weren't raised properly by their mothers. Um, the late 90s, early 2000s have really displaced that. No doubt there are backwards conservatives in Germany who would still talk in those terms. That's it's a mobile society. It's a society which has changed without perhaps the drama of some of the culture wars that we've seen in the United States. But it's very significant. I mean, the the, the current term, and you'll laugh because it's this weird German English term, is patchwork family, which is a term I had never heard until I got to Germany. But from the late nineties, early two thousands, they'd say, "Oh, you live in a patchwork family," which meant you were divorced and they know had somebody <laughs> yeah. else's kids. Wow. Um, so. And they they use the English because it signifies modernity to them, right? Um, um, but but um, it, it points to the fact that the, the, there has been a really very significant cultural change in that respect. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. So there's one other thing which we talk about a lot on Slate Money when it comes to Germany. Well, I talk about a lot because I'm mildly obsessed by it, which is um, how much of an outlier Germany is in terms of home ownership. And I know that Anna wants to talk a little bit about wealth inequality, and these things are related. Mm. But let's start just with the fact that Germans, unlike virtually anyone else, certainly unlike the Brits or the Americans or the French or the Greeks, they just don't own their homes. Yeah, and, no. and like, where does that come from and what's up with that? Well, I mean, one element of this, there just isn't the pressure to do so because there's a large amount, relatively speaking, of high-quality rental accommodation available. Not strictly rent-stabilized, but nevertheless in, in in rental agreements that, you know, one could responsibly settle down to living in rental apartments in Berlin once you've got one for the rest of your life. I know most of my colleagues do. Um, and this is a kind of chicken and egg thing because if there's no... 
mortgage-driven um, housing market, then you don't, don't expect much equity appreciation. So why accept the burdens and responsibilities of ownership when you could rent instead? That uh, sounds and, great. And you can acquire equity by way of renovation. So if you do renovations on an apartment you rent in Germany, you acquire equity by virtue of that. You can, you can, if you, you then own move, a little bit of that apartment. You can charge the costs of the kitchen refurb to the people who move in after you. So you can it's a it's a and kind of a flexible model in which you have a you have a real sense of ownership of an apartment even though um, you don't even if you don't own, own it. it. Yeah. So when people say help? they have an apartment in Berlin they mean they have a long-term rental contract. And does this help in terms of I know we were talking about how there's a surprise that the Greeks and the Spanish and the Portuguese mm. are not moving to Germany to find the jobs. But does this help? I'm assuming like in principle, it would help in terms of labor mobility within Germany, that if you're not stuck in a house, then it makes it much easier to pick up and move to where the jobs are. Except you get hurt on the other side of this, which is, you know, the classic rent control dilemma. There's an endless shortage of apartments in Germany. Uh, and I know really drastic shortage of apartments in the hotspots, which is a lot, a lot of where the, animo- where the animosity towards migrants comes from, is that in many places in Germany, it's just really difficult to find a decent apartment within commuting range of your job. So you get there's a there's an evident kind of trade-off. And they fix that in various ways by tax incentivized construction. You can get permits to build if you have a certain amount of uh, subsidized uh, rent-controlled apartments and so on. But they they live in the same range of dilemmas that we do. I think in the background, if I was to think of a kind of fundamental factor, I think there is a real unease with debt. It isn't so much because people say the Germans save a lot. That's not true. The macro data don't show them as being you know, exceptionally high savers. What they do show is households are exceptionally reluctant to take on debt. And I think that's a big part of this equation. People are not comfortable, as say Americans and Brits are, you know, the, it's kind of rite of passage. How soon can I get my mortgage? It's kind of a question. That's really not the, the, the culture at all in Germany. And they don't and have credit cards either. They do now, but for a long time they didn't. Um, wow. yeah. And this does relate to the larger problem of wealth inequality where you have people who've developed wealth by developing productive assets and created jobs, and then that is tax- taxed very favorably. Yep. So you have this transfer of wealth. Yep. And because you only have a very few people who own homes, and I believe a lot of the housing is actually owned by just large companies, and because you also have a lot of Germans, the savings that they do have, they tend to put more a, lot, a large percentage in, in cash and bonds. There's a small equity ownership. So this is going to create a just large inequality. Now, if you also if you just look forward, that seems to be a problem. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think that's a very important point. I mean, it's important to stress, though, on the flip side of that, that, you know, when we look at wealth inequality in places like America and Britain with large numbers of home ownership, one has to ask, you know, what kind of wealth most much of that is, because it's not wealth you can, it's not control of the means of production. It's not, it's not command in any economic sense. You know, your option is to sell it and go move to, you know, Mississippi, where you can live like a king for for the, the proceeds of a Brooklyn apartment, um, or you stay in Brooklyn and cash one for another, right? So it's not actually what the 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 wealth inequality um, uh, in the United States is is far more extreme and looks far more German, if you like, if you concentrate on assets other than housing. So there's a there's a kind of and I'm not that that doesn't mean to dismiss the significance of of the gradient in Germany. And you're absolutely right that a lot of housing there is owned by essentially investment trusts of affluent, very rich people who then invest in apartment buildings. 
the, the really, I mean, if you the, the really dramatic element of wealth inequality in Germany is regional and it's east-west. And that is the truly astonishing thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that's, there all of the things compound. So if you don't have much private ownership, that's the kind of bedrock of wealth equality, right, uh, of housing ownership in most societies. If you don't have any housing ownership and then the control of assets of, 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 of equity and so on is as tightly held as it is in most societies in West Germany. In East Germany, there simply isn't any wealth ownership of that type. People's assets consist entirely of claims on their pension systems and the social insurance fund. It's really the wealth inequality numbers East-West are something to behold. Why isn't wealth taxed more? Is it because they want to encourage wealth creation and there isn't that many people anyway that have anything to be taxed? This is the thing like wealth is hard to tax. Wealthy people don't like being taxed. (laughs) Wealthy people are influential. Germany's just like anywhere else. There there was an absolutely hilarious thing recently with a political science study where the the Germans set out to show how damaging uh, the role of money in American politics was and thought what they would do would contrast the United States with Germany where of course money plays a trivial role. I mean electing Angela Merkel costs less than electing a big state governor in the United States. So they were convinced of what this would show is a radical difference in the influence of rich people's preferences on electoral on on legislative outcomes. And what they what they were astonished to find was that rich people's preferences have a larger influence nah. on legislative <laughs> outcomes in Germany than they do in the US. In the US, the US political system is indifferent to what pe- poor people want. It just responds to rich people. In Germany, there's a negative correlation <laughs> between poor people's preferences and uh, legislative <laughs> outcomes. I mean, it's, it's absolutely yeah. astonishing. So in ways which are you know, fairly obvious, but not very transparent, wealth talks in Germany in the same way as it does in all other capitalist democracies. Um, the thing about America is somehow, you know, the wealth gets splurged and, you know, it's a kind of potlatch of wealth that has to be spent in a kind of anthropological anthropological display of, of excess. It's more efficient in Germany. The, it's vulgar. Yeah. The, yeah, the rich people just get their way, in, uh, but very effective. They, they quietly get they their quietly way and they, and they quietly keep their... their Money in Switzerland where they can't be taxed, yeah. and they... Luxembourg is so close, <laughs> and Luxembourg is just across the border, yeah. and and it's hard to change that. Oh, there is a, there is a, you know, the other thing is that Germany is, of course, a country. You know what we so Germany is a society in which somebody did run that experiment, and the experiment is East Germany, where where indeed wealth was expropriated uh, on a huge scale, and that's left a scarring that, in a sense, in retrospect, vindicates the wealth protection politics of people in the West because the the dilapidation in the East after the wall came down, particularly in the housing stock, was simply shocking. I mean, it was like the most broken down bits of North Philadelphia, the Chicago South Side um, in Europe, which is very rare in Europe. Um, There was literally still bomb damage from World War II unrepaired. Um, And that has left, uh, you know, if anything, compounded the German sense that we're not going to touch this, that wealth is indeed, private ownership is indeed the foundation of any civilized society. Although hasn't that also then led to now less investment in infrastructure because of the focus on... Altogether. I mean, the, the big story in Germany for macroeconomic, you know, from the macroeconomic point of view is just the shockingly no investment numbers. Um, it has the lowest rate of investment uh, in the EU, certainly over a 20-year period. Um, that's a key element in the current account surplus story because there's just no domestic demand. German, the German corporate sector has a high savings rate. 
Um, and the German public sector has had negative uh, net investment rates uh, for most of the time since the late 1990s. And in Germany other words, has like the, the crappiest internet in Europe. Yeah, crappiest internet, railways that don't run on time anymore. Um, very, very mediocre uh, public schools, uh, dilapidated schools uh, and, you know, just frankly, mediocre universities. It's a society that is, you know, underperforming in in key respects quite dramatically, and investments and actually an a key element of that. And a lot of when aware of those assets gone, they, they they're the flip side of the current South surplus. Germans have been investing abroad. Let's let's have a quick numbers round, just because I have a number which I want to bring out here, which I love, which is. Um, 1935. It's rare that my number is a year, but um, in when, when we're talking about wealth taxes, the classic wealth taxes is property tax. And in East Germany, the property taxes are based on the 1935 property values, <laughs> and they've never been updated since then. That's and, and in West Germany, it's not much better. It's like 1965. <laughs> um. My number isn't Germany related. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive I, me. I can. I, do you want to do a segue to a German number? Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Today's the anniversary of the German invasion of the Soviet Union. 22nd of June 1941 is the moment that fascist Germany, Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet state. H- how did that turn out? Uh, <laughs> well, it didn't get yeah. fixed till 1990, <laughs> as far as Germany yeah. was concerned. Yeah. Right. Um, my number is 10 million. That's the um, this month, the U.S. Patent Office issued its 10 millionth patent to Raytheon for something called. Ready? Ready. OK. Is it in German? No, thank God. <laughs> I can I think I can pronounce this for a coherent LADAR using intrapixel quadrature detection. And I don't know what it means. Maybe someone can write in to what's our email address again? Slate money at slate.com. Right. So someone could write in and tell me, but it's some kind of technology you can use in space stuff, driverless cars and other things like that. 10 million. Well done, America. Indeed. (laughs) My number is 85%. So between 1980 and uh, 2000, the Greek drachma um, the value declined 85% against the Deutschmark before they then both went to having the euro. <laughs> so just to suggest that there were maybe some problems from the very beginning of setting it up the way they did. You you mean that like it wasn't reasonable to expect the two to just be completely even from then on in? I, I, one might think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... Um... Adam Tooze, thank you for coming on. I know you have to rush off to Germany to to basically get them to write down all of their Greek bonds and do another <laughs> Greek debt restructuring. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, okay, wait, hang on. This is very important. Adam Tooze, you have a book coming out. What's it called? It's called Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, and it's out on the 7th of August. Excellent. We will read it. Please do. Oh, and, and, and stay tuned to Slate Plus for a discussion of... The Mannschaft is... Why does Germany keep on winning the World Cup? Thank you to Dan Schrader for producing this weekend. Thank you also to Max Jacob, who also produced this weekend. 